All right, tonight's a big night. We are covering two chapters, two, all right? So we're going to be moving fast. So we're going to start by reading Esther's chapter 2 and 3. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Hegei, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hegei, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of uh, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Hegei, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Bigthan, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Amadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people. Each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Okay, so Esther chapter 2. We begin with King Ahasuerus remembering some things and he remembers Vashti he remembers what happened with Vashti he remembers what was decreed so what was decreed yeah that she's no longer queen right she's no longer queen but more than that uh, if you go back to the end of chapter one right the end of chapter one the decree goes beyond just queen Vashti but it changes the structure of the, the household, right? Who's in charge now, according to King Ahasuerus? The man, right? The husband is now in charge. Uh, 
point to note. Um, that's very similar to what we find in Genesis, right? Um, Genesis chapter 3, God's instructing to Eve after the fall is that your desire will be for who? Your husband, right? So who rules the family? The husband, right? According to God's law, the husband. So my question to you, is King Ahasuerus on God's side? How do we know? How do we know he's not? The law, if you just take it at face value, uh, seems to follow along what God's law would be. So how do we know he's not on God's side? Right, yeah. I mean, right, the fruits bear them out, right? Look at the fruits of King Ahasuerus. He has a bunch of people killed. Why? Because he's mad. He doesn't feel good that day. Who knows, right? Uh, he conquers. He got his queen thrown out because she didn't agree with what he said, right? Um, King Ahasuerus is not a good man. He's kind of crazy. Um, he's not a righteous man in any way. How do we know that? Well, I mean, in just one chapter, we're going to see him putting out a law to just totally wipe out a group of people. Why? Because one of his princes said he probably should. Okay. Um, so why, why do I do this? Why do I bring this up? I think it's because this is a very good lesson for us as far as a, a practical exercise in how do you know if someone's following God and following God's law or if they're just happening to follow God's law right now, this one particular time, right? It's very easy for us to get caught up in things. We're like, well, but that, that is what God says. Yeah, okay. But what is the person's motives? What is the person's intentions? What are they trying to do here? In the case of Ahasuerus and his princes and everything, it was... Women can't tell us what to do. Our wives can't dictate what we do. They can't tell us when we're wrong and, you know, when they want to disobey. That's not fair. And so that was their, their goal behind this law, right? And that's not what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Um, so intent and motives are important, right? And so are the fruits of the people behind the, the laws that they make, right? The rules that they say, the statements that they make. Proverbs 16, verse 2. A way to a man will seem right in his eyes, but God judges the motives. If you ask King Ahasuerus, is this a good law? Yes, he would agree. This is a great law, right? Seems right in his eyes. God judges the motives. We have to be very careful. There are a lot of good-intentioned people who will give you great advice. And sometimes it will follow what God would have you to do, and sometimes it will not. And they will both, at both of those times, seem like it's the best thing that you could do. But you have to be careful, right? We have to examine, we have to search, we have to look at the fruits of the people giving us that advice and see if what we're being given is actually wisdom or not. Okay, that's verse 1. Let's move on. 
So King Ahasuerus remembers this, and he remembers, hey, wait, I need a new queen. So what, what do the advisors do? What do the princes tell him to do? I mean, send out and find you a queen then, right? Bring them all in. There's three things that they're looking for. What are they looking for in a potential new queen? Yep, got to be a virgin. What else? Got to be beautiful. There's one more. Got to be young. That's what we need in a queen. That is the best qualities for a queen, right? I mean, if you think about it, the virgin thing is big. Why is that important in an emperor? Yeah, you're talking about succession of the kingdom, right? And so uh, you don't want any questions being given about, you know, what about, well, that son may not really be your son. It may be somebody else's, right? So the virgin thing is, is important in that idea, that context. Um, but those are the three qualifications that they're looking for. And so he appoints these overseers in the kingdom to go out and find young women. How many young women do they bring? A lot, <laughs> many, right? I think sometimes we think of it as like, it's like a beauty pageant. There's like 10 or 20, and that's about it. No, this would be like hundreds, thousand maybe, right? Maybe thousands. Um, you know, we're talking about a king who, when he came back from victory, had a feast that lasted 180 days, and then another one that lasted seven days just to kind of end it out, right? So... Uh, you're not talking about a king that does things in small amounts, right? We go big in the emperor of Persia. Um, and so they send out and they bring in all the young, beautiful virgin women. And, and so then we are introduced to a new individual, a new character, and his name is Mordecai uh, in verses 5 through 7. How old is Mordecai? Interesting, right? It's interesting to think about because in this section with Mordecai, it says Mordecai is a, a Jew, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who was taken when? Same time Daniel was taken, right? So two different ways to look at this passage. Some would say, well, that makes, that makes Mordecai the same age as Daniel, um, I, I would have issues with that, mostly because that would make him like 120 or something at this point. Uh, he would be quite old, right? Um, also, the fact that he, he takes Esther in and she's definitely not old because she wouldn't fit under the qualification of young, beautiful virgin, right? So, um, so yeah, so you have some, some issues there. The other way to uh, look at this passage would be to understand that Kish was the one who was taken, so if Kish was taken, then you have three generations and then Mordecai, right? So if Kish was taken at the time of Jeconiah, think about 30 years between each generation, uh, that would bring you Mordecai to being around 50 at this time, uh, which would make sense for him having a young daughter, right? Adopted daughter, essentially, in Esther. Um, and so we have Mordecai, this Jew, and I think it's very interesting that the, the, the characteristics that it points out about Esther are that she is beautiful of form and face. Why is that important? 
I mean, it fits the qualifications, right? <laughs> it's just pointing out that she fits these qualifications that King Ahasuerus is looking for in a new queen. And so it's just kind of leading you through this story and you, you can understand why she would be taken, right? There's no question why she would be taken. Why? Because she fits the qualifications. Everyone who fits the qualifications is being taken. And so Esther ends up in uh, the custody of Hegei, uh, the eunuch, uh, over the harem. Again, I think these are just small notes that are, are listed in this story to kind of give you pinpricks of seeing where God's providence is, is taking effect, right? I mean, why would Esther a Jew be taken? Well, if she's young and beautiful and a virgin, that seems to be the only qualifications they're looking for, so they bring them all in. They're not asking where they're from. They're not asking who they're related to. They just bring them all in, right? And so Esther is then taken. When she's taken by Hegei, she finds favor with him, and he gives her some things. Um, he gives her uh, maids from the palace. He gives her cosmetics. He gives her food. He moves her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Why would maids from the palace be a benefit to Esther? Yeah, you got experience. You have understanding of the customs. They know the people that you are going to be around and interacting with. And probably they know them in a way where they've only been observing them. Nobody else knows that they exist because they're servants, right? They're maids. But those people tend to pay attention, right? If you look throughout history, the ones that tend to know the most are the maids and the servants and the people that work in the palace, right? Those are the ones that know what's going on. And so if you want to help somebody to get them in the best possible position, you give them maids from the palace because they will know the best way to direct you, to dress you, to, you know, put on your makeup, everything to make you as, as appealing as possible for the king because they know, right? They have that experience. And so that would be a huge help to a Jew living in Persia right, who may not fully understand all the complex intricacies of Persian government, right? Um, and so that would be a big help. Um, you know, it kind of reminds you of, of Daniel, right? What was said about Daniel, that Daniel found favor with the, the overseer in charge of the young men. And so because of that, he got a more prominent position. And I think what that speaks to is it speaks to Esther's character, because it says this not just this one time, but multiple times, that Esther is someone who finds favor in those who are around her. And do you find favor in people you're around who are jerks or arrogant or rude or... I mean, no, not typically, right? I mean, I work in customer service. I don't find a lot of favor in a lot of the people that call and talk to me because they are rude and arrogant and condescending and, you know... Um, they got problems. It's okay. We'll get them fixed. But they're not very kind, right? And so I don't look on those people very favorably. But Esther finds favor. So there's something about her character here, right? We're not told specifically, but generally, you know, with all of our, our knowledge of the scriptures and what it talks about, I think we kind of have a good idea of what could be involved in that kind of a character. And it's important. 
right? It's important because even in a nation and a culture that's not following after God's law, that seems to be valued, right? And we see the same thing today, right? People value individuals who are respectful, who are kind, who care about other people, who try to, uh, you know, are selfless and try to see to other people's needs, right? Those are things that, in general, the world values. And, uh, and I think that's, that's important, right? It shows our character. Um, and so Esther keeps this quiet about her people, right? What nation is Esther from? Well, she's not, she doesn't talk about that. She keeps that quiet. Why does she keep it quiet? Mordecai told her to, right? Her uncle told her, don't tell anybody. Okay, so she listens. She doesn't tell anybody. She takes the advice. And that's going to be very important later, right? It doesn't seem very important right now. But when we get to chapter 3, it seems very important, right? So again, maybe a little providence happening here. Mordecai tells her to be quiet about that, and she does. And Mordecai, he's lost his, his essentially his daughter, She's gone now. She was taken into the the palace. And so what does Mordecai do with all this time that he has now? Yeah, he keeps an eye on her the best way he can, right? Which is to what? Yeah, stay at the king's gate. Why would staying at the king's gate help you find out about Esther? Yeah, people talk. And who are the people who are talking? What's their jobs? They're the servants, right? They're the servants. They're the maids. They're the people that work in the palace. And so if you want to know about what's going on in the palace, Mordecai knows where to go. You go to the king's gate and you listen and you're patient. And maybe you ask some questions of some people that are coming in and out that are, that work there, right? Because they're going to know. I mean, you know, it brings to mind to me the idea of keeping secrets, right? Some people are really bothered when people know things about them that they didn't want known. And that really bothers them. They, you know, they, oh, we got to keep this a secret. Um, I, I generally try to, to live my life in such a way where I just assume everybody knows everything. Um, because really, I mean, God knows everything, right? Um, and yes, we can have secrets. I'm not saying we shouldn't have secrets. But when, you, when you're living your life in a way where like, I want to talk to people about something and I don't want that to be known except for by this one person. So I'm going to tell this person. Well, but I also want to tell this person. So I'm going to tell that person. Don't get horribly offended when eventually everybody knows. Right? Because you're, you're playing that game right? You are essentially gambling at that point. If you don't want it known, don't tell it, right? We find that out in in Proverbs, I believe, right? So how does Mordecai know? Well, what's the new thing happening at the castle? The new thing happening at the castle is picking a new queen. So what is everybody talking about? All the new people coming into the castle to be chosen to be the new queen, right? It's, It's not very far-fetched to imagine that this would be essentially uh, their version of a reality show, right? Who's going to be the next queen of Persia? And so what's our contestants? You know, who's everybody's favorite choice? Do we have camps yet? Has anyone picked their favorite? Are we really hoping that this one gets chosen? You know? Um, Yeah, that makes sense, right? People are people. 
We learned that in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun, right? This is all going to be the same. So will we do that today? Yes, we definitely would. Did they do that back then? Oh, yeah, big time, right? And so uh, Mordecai wants to know about his niece. And to find that out, he is hanging out in front of the court of the harem because that's where she would be and the people working there would know. Um, Every day he's walking back and forth. Uh, so now we come to this point of it's been a year since Esther's been chosen and the period of beautification has ended. Um, you'll, if you just do a quick search, you'll find like Esther's beauty products. That's like a thing. Is this section in these two verses trying to give us a, a better understanding of Persian beauty products? No, right? This is a timeline. This is a time marker of The process took 12 months, so now we are a year later, right? It's very silly to think that that would be like a, oh, you need to buy Queen Esther's oils of whatever. Use them for six months. It'll be amazing, right? Um, Yeah, we don't really know, right? It's very limited description here. It's oils and myrrh, okay? That could be a lot of things. Um, But it's a timeline, right? So 12 months have passed. And now they're going to go into the king. Each lady is going to go into the king. What is happening when they go into the king? I mean, we're adults, so we're not going to beat around the bush. Likely sex is involved, right? The reason why I would say that strongly is because when they go into the king and they they come out... They are moved from the harem that they're in to the harem of the concubines, right? That, that would make sense, that that would happen in that case because you are no longer a virgin, right? You have been with the king, so now you are moved into the harem with the concubines. Um, I think because you're referring to the ones that are in this pool to be chosen to be queen. That's what I would say. Um, I also think that, you know, they're, they're not all going at one time, right? They each get a, a night with the king. So when you're talking just generally about this pool of, of women that have gone into the king, I think they're still referenced as virgins just to keep that, that kind of clarified as far as who you're talking about. We're not talking about all the concubines. They're not the ones that could be chosen. We're talking about the women that are in this pool to be chosen as queen. You know, could it be that they didn't, that sex was not involved? Sure, I think that's possible. Like, it's not explicit here. But I think it's very likely that it was. And and I don't think that takes away anything from the passage. I don't think that takes away anything from Esther. You're talking about a woman who does not have any choice in all of this, really. I mean, yeah, she could make the choice not to do it. She could tell them no, and she would be killed, right? Uh, Typical punishment would be uh, impaled on a stake and hung, Um, or just hung, maybe. Um, Yeah, she could do that, but she didn't. And I don't think this book, I think it's okay even if she does, because we're not talking about, there's no, no scripture here that says, and Esther and King Agiris are what we're looking for as far as how to choose a husband and, you know, wife, that kind of thing. Yes, sir. Even again in verse 19, it says, when the virgins were gathered together a second time. I mean, I'm not, 
I've never, you shocked me. I've never ever heard anyone say that. So maybe that's right, but I've, I've never. Yeah, I think, I think verse 19 is actually setting up the timing of when Mordecai is at the king's gate instead of at the court of the harem. Because he changes places. In, in verse, uh, verse 11, he's at the court of the harem. Verse 19, he's moved to the king's gate. And I think that, again, just kind of follows with where these women are being housed. You're, you're moving them from the harem where the virgins stay to the harem where the concubines stay. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight you on it. Sure, it could be. But, um, but you know, just you know, from my reading and, and study here, that that's, tends to be how I, how I see this here. Again, I don't think this is saying that that's good. Right? I don't think this, this passage is saying, oh, well, we all need to be like Esther and like Ahasuerus. Um, I think it's talking about a woman who's in a very difficult situation, and this is how she's, she's working her way through it at this point, right? Um, and this is just part of the process of him choosing a new queen. Again, Ahasuerus isn't a great upstanding guy. He's got all these women that he's seeing, and yet he also has an affair with his daughter-in-law. So... You know, uh, we're, not, we're not saying he's very uh, committed um, to any one person. But this seems to be part of the practice. Um, now, when they go into the king, they get to, to take stuff, whatever they want. You can take whatever you want. We don't know what Esther took. But what it says is that Esther took the advice of Hegei, the eunuch, Right? And I think that just shows Esther's intelligence in this situation, right? What are you going to bring? Well, a lot of people would just say, well, I know how best to please the king. I'll figure it out myself. I'll make my best choice, and I'll just go with it. Esther takes the advice of ones who may know better, right? Ones who may know best. So she's listening to her uncle Mordecai. She's listening to Hegei, the eunuch, and taking the advice that she's given and using it effectively, right? How do we know it's effective? Yeah, right? The outcome. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, right? And that advice probably had something to do with that, right? We don't know how much, but probably something. And that's important. When we're given good advice, sometimes we we put that advice in our head and we file it under a category of this was good advice that I was given. I'm not going to use it, but I put it under my good advice category, right? That's great. Um, it, it doesn't really help you, though, if you just kind of file it away in the good advice category. I mean, yeah, it helps you if you pull it out and use it later. But often we don't recognize something as good advice just because, oh, yeah, when that situation comes up, that'll be great. No, it's more, that's great advice because I'm currently going through that and I would like to use that right now, right? Um, so when we're given great advice... It would be to our benefit to take it and use it at the time that we need it, right? Just like Esther does here. The king loved Esther more than all the women. That word love, what does that mean? You know, in in the New Testament, when we see the word love, we go back to the Greek and we look up which word they're using, right? Which word are we using for love? In the Greek, they had multiple words for love, and it kind of changed the the meaning or the usage in the, the context, right? But... In Hebrew, the word love is love. It's very similar to English, right? Do we have a lot of different uses for the word love in English? Oh, yeah, right? It's Valentine's Day. I love everybody. Well, but mm, 
<laughs> How much do you love everybody? The same? Really? Um, same in Hebrew, right? This word is used here. It's used in the law when it talks about God loves his people. It's used when you talk about Amnon, Amnon loved his sister Tamar, who he raped. So, yeah, it's just a word for love, right? Does, does King Ahasuerus love Esther in the way that God would have him to as a husband to his wife? No. How do we know that? It takes time. It takes uh, knowledge beyond are they young, are they beautiful, are they a virgin, right? I love her because there's three things that I know, right? Right. Like, again, like we... Yeah, like we started at the beginning, do our, do our little process at the beginning, right? How do we know that King Ahasuerus may not exactly understand love because of his actions, right? That's, that's historical record. We can go back and look and see. He burned down Athens because they were rebelling against him. Okay, yeah, that's... Uh, mm. <laughs> um, he's going to sign a law in just a chapter that is going to wipe out an entire nation who's not even rebelling against him, just because... So, does he understand love? I would say no, right? But he cares about Esther more than the other women. He shows her kindness and favor more than all the other virgins. And he sets the royal crown on her head and she becomes queen instead of Vashti. So, what does that say? Well, that says that regardless of King Ahasuerus and how he feels about Esther and whether it's genuine love or, you know, just kind of a more lustful love. He has some kind of feelings toward Esther and he cares about her in some way, right? May not be to the extent that we would like to see as Christians, but he cares about her more than others. And he expresses that by doing what he normally does, which is showing extravagant gifts. Yes, ma'am. possibly be showing, showing more thought toward her because maybe she was Whereas maybe some of the other women um, didn't bow down to him as a man as much. Maybe she, from Mordecai, he taught her to kind of keep your head low, keep your mouth shut, do what he says. He's the man sort of thing. Maybe she learned to adjust or adapt to that because that's what he wanted from the maid servants and everybody else. He wants you to show that he's the man and he's in control. So maybe she showed that more and some of the others is why he looked at her more. Yeah, I think it's very clear from the character of Esther what you said, which is that she has an understanding of humility that maybe Queen Vashti and some of these other individuals don't, right? She listens to advice and she takes it. You can't do that if you're Haman who's proud and arrogant and you think you know everything, right? You, you can take advice if you're humble enough to look at that advice and say, that's something I don't know. I need to be doing this, right? How Esther approaches people all throughout this book is in a very humble way, right? And so, yes, I do believe that that is something that is is key to her character. We don't see whether she learned that from Mordecai or not, but I would say that, you know, we all learn things from the people that we're raised by, so it's very likely that, yeah, she did. Um, Any other comments?
King Ahasuerus has a new queen. So what do we do? I mean, we're in the Persian Empire, so what do you think we do? We have a big feast, right? Have a big feast. This one's called Esther's Feast. She even gets it named after her, right? That's how much he cares. Um, And there's gifts. He gives gifts because he's king, and that's what kings do. They give gifts to the people that they like and care about. Um, And so he gives gifts. Uh, Some people, who who has a translation that says, uh, who has an English standard version? All right, Jonathan, can you read me verse 18, please? Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, not only do we get a feast, we get a tax break on top of the feast. Who's excited about the new queen? Yeah, all right, we got one. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you're talking about during this time, Ahasuerus has come off of conquesting. He has basically bankrupted the country, but he's got money because he's an emperor, right? He rules a ton of nations. He's got money. And so he's throwing it around like crazy, building all these things. And to get that money back, he is heavily taxing his people. If you want a people to really like the queen, you give them a tax break when she's selected, right? Um, so, yeah, the people at this time, are going to have a really good outlook on Esther. Because, one, she finds favor in all who are around her. But, two, when Esther's chosen as queen, we get a large feast, we get a big tax break, right? So who's not going to like it? Um, And so King Ahasuerus throws this feast, Esther's feast. This is the third feast throughout the story of Esther. Remember, it's told over eight feasts. This is the third. And then, you know, Mordecai has shifted places. He's now at the king's gate instead of the gate of the harem. And so, again, it repeats that Esther has not yet made known her people uh, or her kindred as Mordecai commanded um, when uh, she was under his care. And so while Mordecai is sitting at this gate, he hears something. What does Mordecai hear? An assassination plot, right? Two guys want to kill the king. And so what does Mordecai do with that information? Yeah, he gives it to Esther. He passes it along, right, through his network of servants and things, gets it to Esther, and what does Esther do with it? She takes it to the king, and they investigate, and they find out that these two men are guilty of an assassination plot, and they are hanged. Some versions may have that they are staked, um, and that's just because either one is possible. Under the Persian Empire, yeah, you could be hanged, you could be crucified, you could be staked. So, yeah, either one. Um, It doesn't change the outcome at all. Um, And so this is then written into the book of the records, right? Written into the book of the records. And that's going to be important later. It's not the first assassination attempt on Ahasuerus, though. Uh, He has multiple against him. Some are found out, but eventually one finally gets through, and he is killed eventually by an assassination attempt. But not this time. This time he's safe. So then after these things... In chapter 3, we are introduced to a new individual. This man is named Haman. Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Who are the Agagites? We know Agag. Hadn't been too long since we went through that class, right? Who's Agag? (laughs) 
yeah, Saul was supposed to kill all of the Amalekites, right? Samuel comes to Saul. He says, the Lord's going to send you to wipe out this nation. Go wipe out the Amalekites, kill everybody. Saul goes and he takes the king back with him and he leaves the women and the children and the animals and everything alive, right? He gets in trouble. Samuel kills Agag, but that's it. So now we have all these women and children that are still around. So is it possible that even after Agag's killed, that one of his descendants somehow made it through? Yeah, sure, right? That's not a contradiction. The women and children are still alive somewhere. So he's an Agagite, and he gets promoted. And when he gets promoted, he gets this special uh, command from the king that everyone, when he comes through, should bow and pay homage. And everybody does, except for one person. That person is Mordecai. And this gets on Haman's nerves. But the servants are worried about Mordecai. They're trying to help him out. And so they keep asking him, hey, you're supposed to bow down when this guy comes through. He's standing at the king's gate. (laughs) Haman comes in and out, probably to go to his job all the time. And he's not bowing down, right? Everybody else is, but not, not Mordecai. And so they ask him why. And what does Mordecai tell him? I'm a Jew. Now, is there any text in the old law that says you are not allowed to bow down to anybody if they are not God? Uh, Yeah, in the law it talks about you're not to bow down to idols specifically. Um, It doesn't say individuals. It does say idols. So some would say that maybe, you know, with this idea of paying homage to Haman, maybe Haman is set himself up as some kind of religious deity. I mean, that's not that far-fetched. We look at Egypt and the Pharaoh claiming to be a god. Um, You know, a lot of religious groups did that. Um, But we don't know specifically. But that may be part of it. It may also be tied into Daniel chapter uh, 6, where Darius actually gave an instruction that the people that follow after Daniel's god are supposed to have certain uh, leeway, right? certain uh, exceptions given in their worship to their God, to Daniel's God. So maybe it's tied in with that as well, because Darius was a part of this empire, right? A previous emperor under this empire. So that should still be in the Persian books, as it were. Um, But regardless, the servants go to Haman because Mordecai tells them this, and they just want to see if it's true, right? Is that true? So they go and tell Haman, and... What does Haman say? Yeah, no, that's not, that's not going to last, right? That's not going to stand. That's not okay. Haman's not okay with that. It enrages him. And, you know, we see a lot of scriptures in the Bible that talk about the danger of anger, right? Don't let anger control you. A fool loses his temper, All throughout the Proverbs, in Ephesians, we see where it says, be angry, yet do not sin, right? So we understand there is an idea of anger that may be uh, right, but what we can't do is let that anger control us in a way that would make us sin, right? And so we see that, we understand that. Haman doesn't care. Haman lets it rule him, right? He obsesses over it. He lets it ruin his day over and over and over again to a point where does Haman just take it out on Mordecai? 
no, I don't want to ruin Mordecai. I don't want to ruin Mordecai's family. I want to wipe out everyone who is even associated with the nation that he comes from, right? So I'm going to go to the king. But first, we have to roll some dice. We have to cast some lots. You know, maybe that has some uh, religious significance. It seems like it would in this case. Uh, He's casting lots to decide the day. How do we know the day? Well, my God has to approve this, so we need to throw some lots. We need to you know, get this done. And then based on that, we'll pick the day and I can wait because once that day comes, it'll be great. But he finally rolls the day and he takes it to King Ahasuerus. And so that's where we'll pick up next class. Thank you very much.